Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello everyone, I'm C.P. Leslie, the host of New Books in Historical Fiction, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Today I'm speaking with Colleen Cambridge about the second of her Phyllida Bright mysteries, A Trace of Poison. Colleen Cambridge has written numerous novels under several different pen names. The Phyllida Bright books offer a new take on the well-known detective novelist Agatha Christie, who in the series is both Phyllida's friend and her employer. Phyllida is also the series narrator, and as A Trace of Poison opens, she is listening to a conversation that under most circumstances would be alarming. Writing Morning I just don't see any way around it. He's simply got to be done away with, said a hushed voice. Right. The problem is how to do it, replied another voice. Soon. While anyone else overhearing such an exchange would surely be alarmed, Brilda Bright merely smiled to herself and went about the business of counting tablecloths for the welcome luncheon at the Lisley murder fete. Being the housekeeper at the vast and elegant Mallowan Hall, the home of the famous novelist Agatha Christie and her husband Max Mallowan, Brilda was quite used to overhearing and participating in discussions about murder and the finer points of how to permanently do away with an inconvenient person. Whether above stairs or below stairs, there was always some conversation going on about which poison to use, whether a knife or a gun would be more or less bloody when employed than the other, and if a blow to the head would actually do the deed, or whether a spike shoved into the back of the neck would need to be added to complete the task before stuffing the body of a maid into a downstairs cupboard. To find out more about this incident, please join me in welcoming Colleen Cambridge. Hi, Colleen. Thank you for agreeing to talk with me today. Thank you so much for having me here. I really appreciate it. According to my count, you've written a dozen series aimed at various genres and age ranges, too many novels to go into one by one. How did you get into writing fiction in the first place? Well, I grew up a voracious reader. Um, I mean, I read mysteries and historical fiction all, you know, all through my middle school and even grade school years and continue to read even through college when I should have been studying. I remember reading Gone with the Wind the week of my very first final exams in college. <laughs> have no idea how I passed those exams. So being a voracious reader, I eventually ran out of books. Or I would generally run out of books to read because I just read them too fast. And so then I started deciding, well, I could write my own story. So I started writing stories back in, in middle school, young middle school, and wrote all through college, uh, excuse me, high school and all through college. Um, and then I just, I just never stopped writing. It was, if, if I wasn't writing, it was for a very short amount of time. 
I was always kind of working on something. And I wrote uh, eight books before I sold my first novel, which was the ninth book that I had written. And that book was sold in 2005 and came out in 2007. And since then, um, I have written uh, full-time. I'm a full-time writer. And many of the books that I wrote or started before I sold my first book have been published since. So I'm very lucky to be able to do what I love to do. What inspired the Philadelphia Bright series? It was actually not my idea. I have to confess, it was my editor. She called me one day and she said, Colleen, would you be interested in writing a series with Agatha Christie's housekeeper solving mysteries? And I loved the idea immediately, um, partly because I love historical mysteries. And I also like devoured most of the Agatha Christie's when I was in middle school and high school. And so I, I'm a huge Christie fan. I've been watching all of the David Suchet adaptations from, that the BBC made. And so it was just kind of a match made in heaven. And, you know, the idea was what she said to me was literally Agatha Christie's housekeeper. And then everything after that was left up to me to develop it the way I wanted to. Fortunately, you know, when I wrote the proposal, the first few chapters and put, you know, my ideas down on paper, my editor and my publisher alike uh, really loved the series. So, like I said, it was a match made in in heaven. It really was. The first Philida book, Murder at Malowin Hall, opens with a body in the library, which is a deliberate and acknowledged reference to Christie's famous The Body in the Library. It's wonderfully done, but why did you choose to start there? Well, uh, thank you very much for that. And uh, just a side note, I'm uh, the other Philida books will all also have sort of homages like that to Christie novels, along with uh, Christie Easter eggs scattered throughout. Um, I chose to start that way because I wanted from the very first page, A, to capture the reader's attention, there's a dead body, and B, to demonstrate who Philida Bright was. And to me, I thought that, I thought that was a, 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 an effective way to demonstrate that this is a woman who's very self-assured. She's comfortable with who she is. She has seen some of the world, some difficult things in the world, some, some, you know, horrific things in the world. And she's a caring person. All of those things I I chose to, to, you know, have her walk in and see the body in the library and not to scream uh, for that reason. And then the very, you know, within that next scene, a couple pages in, not even that far, she calls the constable in the local, you know, nearby town and informs him that there's a body in Agatha Christie's library. And he, you know, of course, is laughing his head off because everybody in the area knows that Agatha Christie lives in this house and that there's a body there. He thinks it's a joke. So that was I, that was the way I wanted to introduce the series, the setup and my character, along with her sort of um, semi antagonistic relationship with Mr. Dobble, the butler. And all of that kind of shows up in that first you know, relatively brief scene. It really does. Uh, from early in that first book, we get a sense that there's more to Philida than meets the eye, specifically that she would like parts of her past to remain concealed. I'm not asking you to talk about that, since it's clearly something that will be revealed gradually if you tell us at all. But what can you tell us about the parts of her past that she is willing to share? Well, um, she is a she and Agatha Christie, and obviously Phyllida's fictional, but she and Agatha Christie met when Agatha Christie was working at the hospital dispensary during the First World War. And they were about the same age, and they were both single at the time, and they met each other and uh, became friends, in my mind, in this world that I've created. And then 
Hilda went on to, um, you know, be on the battlefront, uh, working in the medics with the medics in the battlefront there in the Great War for a while. And then we're not really sure what happened after that. What we do know is that she, Philida, is probably one of the few people, if the only person in the world, who knows about what actually happened during Agatha Christie's um, actual 11-day disappearance that occurred when she was going through her divorce with her first husband, Archie Christie. And I feel like that is part of the reason these two women are close friends. They met each other as single women working in, you know, a medical setting during the war, and they became friends. And they both have secrets that the other one is very likely privy to. And they are now together as, yes, employee-employer, but also still as very close friends. Yes, indeed, there is a reason that Philida is choosing to work as a housekeeper, albeit in a very large at a very large estate, which, by the way, is fictional. Agatha Christie did not ever live in a, in a place like Malouin Hall. Um, but she's living there, uh, Philip is living there and working there because you're right, there are reasons, she has her reasons. And as she thinks to herself in the first book, there nobody's, um, you know, inf- there's no, nobody else needs to know but she. Um, that actually drives the butler crazy. Mr. Dobble, who's a little bit older than Philida, probably at least a decade older than Philida, just can't stand the fact that he doesn't know much about her background. He doesn't know whether she's married because Mrs. Bright, um, housekeepers were always given the title Mrs. whether they were married or not. He doesn't know how old she is. He doesn't know anything about her. He doesn't think she came up, quote, quote, came up through service. So he, he's very, he's just as interested as I hope the readers are about what is Philida's background. We do know that she knows how to pick a lock. We do know that she is grace under pressure, that she's not easily frightened, that she's a quick thinker. And I'm sure all of that, um, you know, has to do with her past, which will perhaps in part or in full be revealed over the course of the series. Well, I hope it will. (laughs) I'm curious, too. (laughs) I'll be honest, so do I. (laughs) I I mean, to be honest, I... Yeah, I, I mean, I have, you know, a vague idea of some things that have happened in her past that caused her to be the way she is, but there are things that I still have to determine. And that's one of the pleasures of writing a series. Um, and and the, my process of writing is that I don't really, I don't plot ahead. I don't look ahead. Um, I'm pretty much focused on what's happening at the moment, even though I have general ideas of where things are going and why people are the way they are. So um, it, it'll be interesting <laughs> as the series develops what we find out about Philida. Yes, uh, I mean, I work very much the same way. And, and sometimes my characters totally surprise me. But that is the fun of it. <laughs> indeed, indeed, that is the fun of it. Let's move on now to A Trace of Poison. Specifically, let's get back to the conversation that I read in the introduction. What is the murder fet? So the murder fet is uh, a fictional event that happens in Listley, which is a small town near Malum and Hall. But the uh, very non-fictional group, the Detection Club, is part of the murder fet. The, the Detection Club was actually a real club. They actually still exist today. That was started in the late 20s by a group of mystery writers, including Agatha Christie and G.K. Chesterton and um, Dorothy L. Sayers and some others. They all got together and decided that they wanted to have a club that would sort of support, they could support each other, talk about the business. I'm sure they exchanged stories about editors and publishers and readers and and plot ideas and poisons and all of that. They used to meet in London regularly for dinner. And in fact, when the Detection Club was kind of being developed, uh, I think Anthony Berkeley was another one who was very instrumental in it. They asked Agatha Christie if she would be the president and she declined. 
she's a fairly, she was a very shy, fairly shy person who really didn't like a lot of publicity. Part of the reason for that was because this 11 day disappearance that happened that was picked up by the media. And after that, from then on, anytime she would have any sort of interview, people would always ask about that. And of course, she didn't want to talk about it. So she was very publicity shy. So she was not the president. But G.K. Chesterton, who many people are familiar with because he wrote Father Brown, which is a wonderful series on uh, the BBC. I think it's a BBC or maybe it's Acorn TV or BritBox. I don't know, but I enjoy that uh, quite a lot. So in, in the murder fate, effect, which happens in my book, we have members of the detection club coming to Listley in order to be part of a charitable event to raise money for a new roof for an orphanage. And the murder fet is uh, part festival and part um, sort of mentoring or mentorship and a contest for uh, local mystery writers. And they call the local mystery writers in Listley call themselves the murder club. So we have a murder fet, a murder club, a bunch of murder mystery writers, both published and unpublished. And of course we have a murder. It must have been fun to write those uh, real-life mystery writers as well as your own made-up mystery writers. Um, tell us how you, well, you obviously came to pick them because they were in the detection club, but tell us how you approached them. So, um, first of all, I had I had read, um, Dorothy, so I picked uh, only three besides Agatha Christie from the detection club to come to Listley. I didn't want to have too many, uh, you know, characters to have to deal with and for the reader to keep track of. I picked the ones that I thought would be the most uh, well-known or familiar to the readers, Dorothy L. Sayers, uh, especially with her uh, Lord Peter Whimsey series and Harriet Bain, uh, G.K. Chesterton, of course, because of Father Brown, and Anthony Berkeley because he was one of the founders of the Detection Club. He's not super well-known, but he did write a pretty well-known book at the time called The Poison, I think it's The Poison Chocolates, case or puzzle or mystery, something like that. So I read um, books by all of them. I read The Poison Chocolates. I read some Father Brown stories. I read um, several Peter Whimsey stories, again, which I had read previously, to familiarize myself just with their writing. And uh, I did research on the Detection Club. I did a little bit of research on each of the uh, well-known mystery characters. You know, they're not the feature of the story, so I didn't go super deep into their, you know, backgrounds and into their biographies, but enough that you know, I felt comfortable writing them, describing them, what sorts of things they would be doing at this murder fet. One thing that I found very interesting was that there was a point in time where there was discussion among some of the members, not all, but some of the members of the detection club about putting their minds to actually, you know, helping to solve mysteries or figuring out mysteries. And and I know Dorothy L. Sayers was one who was really interested in in um, trying to, you know, look into, a, it was a mysterious death, I believe. And I think Anthony Berkeley was another one who had expressed interest in it. They never got very far. And that is one of the kind of pegs that I hang my, you know, proverbial cap on in this book and in this series is that mystery writers love to write mysteries and plot mysteries and solve murders and, you know, develop suspects and motives. But they really don't want to do it in real life because when they're writing their books, they can do it however they want. As Agatha says in the first book, you know, I can put the clues wherever I want. I can give anybody a motive that I want. I can't do that in real life. It's much harder in real life, which is why it ends up that Phyllida is the one that sort of, you know, takes the reins. She is equipped for a number of reasons. Um, she has the right mindset. She's not shy. You know, she's a very intelligent person. So, uh, my point was that the detection club 
you know, comes to Lisley, they do the murder fate, and they're interacting with about four, I think there's five other, you know, amateur writers who have written short stories and submitted them to the Detection Club members to read and grade. And the best one is going to get a contract to publish a short story in an American and in a British periodical. So I also got to have fun developing those five people in the Listley Murder Club who are the amateur detectives and who all turn out to be the suspects in the murder that takes place at the murder fate. And each one of those characters, not only did I have fun developing their particular character, but I also had fun thinking about what they'd be writing as mystery writers. And uh, so I was able to drop in just hints, you know, character names, settings, you know, setups, that kind of thing, premises. And uh, part of me thinks, gosh, some of these stories would be really fun to write someday. Um, And at the same time, I thought, oh, my God, that would be way too much work. But uh, that's kind of how I approached it. I approached it from the perspective of all these murder mystery writers get together as happens nowadays and has happened many times in the past, published and unpublished to talk, mentor each other. And then what would happen if somebody died with a whole bunch of murder writers around? Just imagine how that would go. I mean, you could imagine how they'd all be standing around, you know, talking about clues and red herrings and what kind of poison was it? I mean, it was just, I had fun writing it. I hope that it comes across as a tongue in cheek sort of wink, wink, to the reader in the way that I intended it. Oh, I thought it did. It certainly did to me. Um, did you have a, a particular take on Agatha Christie herself at this point in time? Uh, she's on her second marriage at this point. She is. She's much happier now. Uh, Max Malone is, I believe, 13 years younger than her. And in fact, he had to basically convince her to marry him because she never thought she would marry again. And he was much too, in her mind, much too young for her. And in fact, I I remember reading when I was doing some of the research that she, when she went to file for her passport after marrying him, she changed her birth date to make her a few years younger so that the, the, the difference in their age wouldn't be so noticeable. But she's, she's at the point in her career where she's become, you know, a pretty well-known name. She's writing regularly. She's a bestseller. She's travels a lot. She and Max travel a lot. And I think she's is pretty, you know, pretty content with her life and uh, with, with, you know, where she's at with her career. She had published The Murder of Roger Ackroyd about, so, so my series is set vaguely in the early 30s. I'm, I don't give dates because um, if I do give dates, then I could get up bumping up to World War II at some point where a lot of things change. And, I, and my intention at this point is to keep the series firmly in the 30s. So it's going to be a little vague around dates. But it is the early 30s. And Roger Ackroyd, which, was, uh, which made quite a, a, um, quite a splash for a number of reasons, had been published about four or five years earlier. So she you know, is firmly established by this point. So she's in a good place. Let's get back to the members of the the uh, Listley Murder Club. Those five people. Uh, give us some quick character sketches so that we are introduced to them and know who they are. Very good. Okay, so Dr. John Bott, who was B H A T T, by the way, not B O T T, um, was uh, introduced in Murder at Malowin Hall. He is the local physician, and uh, he seems to have an interest in Phyllida as more than friends. He's invited her to join him at the cafe a few times, so they're friends. Um, I would say there's probably not much more than that right now, but he is one of the members of the murder club and he writes, he's writing a series about a doctor turned detective. And so he's very interested in anything that 
you know, is related to medical. So when somebody's dying of poison, has died of poison, he wants to be the one who's testing all of the, uh, you know, the potential, you know, vehicles for the poison. Of course, you know, the authorities aren't going to let him do that because he's a suspect. Then we have Alistair Wokesley, uh, or excuse me, <laughs> Wokesley is the character I'm writing now, Alistair Whittlesby, Alistair Whittlesby, who's the president of the murder club, and he is not well-liked by anyone in the murder club. He is very, uh, he thinks he's the world's ne- next Agatha Christie. He thinks he's the William Shakespeare of crime fiction. He is as yet unpublished. He's a misogynistic, sneering, dis- unlikable man, but he writes good stories. So he is actually, um, what we discovered very early on is that he was most likely the person who had been intended for the poison that kills um, Father Tooley, who was a priest who was hosting this uh, murder fate because it's the orphanage that needs their new roof. So that's Alistair Whittlesby. Um, there's Miss Crowley. Um, an unenlightened person might call her a spinster. She's in her 50s, probably, um, lives by herself, and she is writing a murder, or she's writing a story about Fiero, uh, Filberto Fierro, and he is a charming, roguish uh, Italian who is mainly a jewel thief, but he's just starting to get into um, uh, investigating murders because, as she says, murders sell better. So she's writing this fantasy man it's very clear that she's never left listley in her life but she's writing about this man who you know spends his time in the riviera uh with all these and hobnobbing with all these wealthy people so he's she's kind of living vicariously through him and and i appreciate that as a writer because gosh i do the same thing then we have the antiques dealer um whose name is escaping me at the moment it's been a while. Oh, gosh, I can't think of his name right now. But he is writing about a woman, a, uh, um, an older woman who has a cat, and they solve mysteries together. And there have been lots of arguments about uh, whether this older woman should have a cat or not. And he's not very happy about the way people have been talking about his his um, premises, the people who don't know anything about older women and, and cats. And then there's um, Mrs. Rollingbroke, Vera Rollingbroke. She is married to Sir Raleigh Rollingbroke, who is one of the um, wealthier men in town. And she is a delightful person, very fashionable. And she's writing a mystery series about um, her uh, Mrs. Um, oh, uh, Cuddlesworth, Cuddlesworth, Mrs. Cuddlesworth and her cat Bunkle. And they are, uh, you know, she's a woman, the, the woman is a, you know, um, she is a high class woman with a cat and they're solving mysteries and the cat talks and everybody rolls their eyes about that. And there's definitely a reason she's not been published yet, but her husband, Sir Raleigh absolutely adores all of her books or her stories. And he's her biggest supporter. And then finally, there's the vicar, um, uh, Mr. Bildop, who is very good friends with Mr. Dobble, the Butler at Mallow and Hall. And he is writing what would kind of be considered an homage to father Brown, but his name is father Veritas. I did look up the name of the antiques dealer, and it's it's one I never knew how to pronounce. Actually, it's Louis Genevin or Louis Genevin. Yeah, Genevin. Yeah, thank you, thank you for doing that. I'm sorry. I just my my mind just went blank when I was thinking about. It. Yep, Louis Genevin. He has an antiques shop in I believe it's Belgravia. It's either Belgravia or Kensington, and um, spends half his time there, half his time in Lisley. And what exactly happens that first night of the murder fete to set up the central mystery of the novel? 
So all of these aforementioned characters, the, both the published authors and the uh, murder club members, are all at a, a small little cocktail party at the uh, parish where Father Tooley is. And Father Tooley is the one who had, who was to collect and, um, you know, calculate the winner of this contest for these short stories. And so he was getting all the scores from Agatha Christie and the other Detection Club members, and he was to calculate them. So he was the one who knew who was going to be winning the contest. But the contest results were not going to be announced until the following day. So they're all at this cocktail party, and Father Tooley is has a drink and all of a sudden he starts to react in a very bad way and then the next thing you know he falls to the ground and he's dead and the first reaction of everybody is first they're shocked they're like oh my god somebody died and then louis genovan is the one who starts clapping and he's like thank you this was wonderful and everybody laughs and they're like oh oh it's part of it's part of the murder fate it's part of you know it's part of the deal it's entertainment and then Philida gets to the body and she's like, wait a minute, this isn't right. He's really dead. And then everybody kind of stops, freaks out. And then they start arguing about who, what poison was used to kill him. So that's kind of how the story begins and proceeds. And it doesn't take very long, maybe another, you know, page or two before uh, Mr. Whittlesby comes herring up to the constable and says, somebody tried to kill me. And we realize through, you know, his explanation that the drink that father Tooley drank from and died from, was meant for him. So nobody's surprised that Mr. Whittlesby was a potential target for murder because he's not well-liked by anybody. I probably should mention that this prize is actually a huge prize for an unpublished author. It's international publication. You, you mentioned what it was, but the, the idea, I, I mean, most of us or most people wouldn't kill for it, but it's but, but writers, I'm telling you, writers are a competitive lot, yes. <laughs> um, you know, and it, it was, I mean, at that time, most, you know, probably Agatha, I mean, Agatha and Chesterton and others published as many short stories that, as they did novels. I mean, more short stories. It was definitely a way to make a living, whereas we don't really see as much of that nowadays. You know, if you are going to make a living writing, you're generally making a living by publishing books. But, but to be published, you know, in Cosmopolitan in the U.S. and in the Strand in the U.K., those were pretty big deals. So, yeah, and there were people, there are, they were competitive, and yes, there are people who would kill for that. It so often happens. Not that I would. <laughs> <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> Important to make that clear. <laughs> right, yeah, I just want to make sure everybody understands who's listening. <laughs> it so often happens in murder mysteries, the local police and even the Scotland Yard inspector are no match for Phyllida's powers of detection. What do we need to know about Constable Greensticks and Inspector Quirk? Well, you know, Constable Greensticks is the local constable. He's not used to dealing with murder. He just, you know, he just wants to basically keep the peace. Somebody, you know, let somebody's goat out of their pen. You know, he'll he'll deal with that. Somebody's dog runs through somebody's yard and digs up their roses. He's going to deal with that. You know, that's he's he's just not equipped to deal with murder, and rightly so. And so um, Inspector Cork, who is our uh, local inspector, he's not located in Lisley, but obviously he comes to the area and when necessary, he certainly has a high opinion of himself. But, but where these guys go wrong and where they're missing the boat is what Phyllis's strengths are. And that is that she is tied into both levels of society. 
she's a servant, yes, but she's a higher level servant. She's a housekeeper, and she's also Agatha's friend, and Agatha treats her like an equal. She's her employee, but they were friends, and they've always been friends, and they were friends as equals, and they remain equals. Um, Agatha respects Phyllida, and Phyllida respects Agatha, and so Phyllida has the ability to speak to people at a higher um, social level than, than maybe, you know, than a chambermaid or a cook or anything like that. At the same time, Philida also has connections with the servants. And anybody who know, really knows much about history or anything like that knows that the servants know everything. They know everything that's going on. They see things. They hear things. They're most of the time ignored or not, re, you know, not thought about being there. So she has a network of servants in a way very similar to Sherlock Holmes's network of, uh, you know, ragamuffins and, um, you know, I hate you. I don't know what, what word to use other than street people, but people who lived, you know, on the streets in London, he had his own network of informers and Philadelphia has something similar. And that's where the authorities kind of missed the boat because she has, they, the, the servants trust her. And they will tell her things that they might not tell the authorities. And she also approaches things in a different way. As a person who is used to running a household, as a person who manages people, as a person who knows how things are supposed to, you know, be done and managed. I mean, that's how she solves the murder in Murder at Malaman Hall in the first book. It's because she not only has informants, but she notices things in the household that the average, you know, authority figure or even master or mistress might not notice. She actually gets along uh, very well with her staff because even though she's a strong personality in all of the ways that you've described, she's also caring, especially towards and compassionate towards her maids and the other people that she uh, oversees. Uh, her relationship with the butler, you've already mentioned, was cont contentious, but he disapproves for her of her for many reasons that go beyond just not knowing exactly who she is. I mean, he doesn't like the way she dresses. He doesn't, he's, he's really in contest with her in lots of different ways. Um, talk to us a little bit more about that. Well, you know, they are what I would say, almost like frenemies. We use that term nowadays. Both of them have the goal of running the Mal Malin household as well and efficiently and inexpensively as possible. They both have the same goal. They simply don't appreciate the way the other one goes about doing it. Not that they, not not the way their tasks are, but perhaps the way they present themselves. Um, you know, Philida is a very strong woman. She's used to being in charge. She's used to making her own decisions, and you know, she gets her hackles up a little bit when you know she gets, for lack of a better term, mansplained, or you know, having someone kind of telling her how to do things or questioning how she does things. And yet, at the same time, both of them do their jobs well, and they both do respect each other for that. But they are also always looking for ways to niggle at the other one. I would tell you, it's sort of like siblings. I think they're sort of like siblings. You know, they don't necessarily get along, but by gosh, if you, you know, criticize one of them, they would, they would um, you know, they would support you and protect you. So that's the way I look at her and Dobble. Definitely more like siblings or frenemies than anything, because at the end of the day, they both want um, Agatha and Max to have a beautiful house and, you know, well-run and safe and private and so on. And they're both big fans of Agatha's writing. They both read mysteries. And I think at some point, I mean, it becomes kind of clear in A Trace of Poison that Dobble has kind of a secret of his own. And 
the first book and even in A Trace of Poison, we learned that Phyllis is probably pretty aware of the secret and she doesn't look, look um, badly upon him. She doesn't uh, judge him for it for whatever reason. And that's semi-explained in the book. So they, they get along, but barely. And they're always looking at ways to niggle each other. That's really what it comes down to. They just like to nitpick. Now, back to the rest of the staff. Phyllida has very high exacting standards. She expects a lot from her staff, but yes, she also supports them, you know, on a personal level. And that's part of the reason she has already, after only solving, you know, two murders in the previous book, she's already established this relationship with the, with the downstairs world in Lisley and the surrounding households because everybody knows that she has she put herself on the line to prove a servant was innocent of something that they had potentially been accused of in the first book so she's made a reputation for herself as being fair and looking out for the downstairs people she also has another frenemy uh, in bradford uh who <laughs> it seems like a potential love interest but he's definitely not there yet um and at this point in the series he just loves getting under Phyllis's skin which he does very well tell us about him <laughs> well, you know how you mentioned earlier how uh, sometimes the characters just do what they want to do? So when I was writing Mallow and Hall, I did not know that there was going to be a character named Bradford who was the chauffeur. I had no idea. In fact, um, at that point, I was thinking John Bott would be the basic love interest. Because in my mind, in a series, there's going to be a love interest. Most of us in our lives have love interests of some sort, some sort. And somebody like Phyllida, she's going to attract attention because she's, you know, she's attractive. She's confident. She knows who she is, even though that might be off-putting to some people. Um, there are certain people, certain men that might, that certainly find that attractive. So I did not know this. And I was literally writing the scene, a, the, a scene where she was going upstairs at Mallon Hall to, to snoop around the bedroom. But she looked out the window and suddenly my words, the words are coming out of my fingers that she saw a figure slinking around the garage. Well, unbeknownst to her, that was the new chauffeur, but she thought it was, you know, somebody, you know, some sort of villainous person sneaking around. So she ran downstairs and she goes and she confronts him. And of course, that's how they start off, not on the greatest of terms. She's accusing him of sneaking around. He's just trying to do his job. He doesn't need a bossy housekeeper out here in his garage telling him what to do. But um, I do think that she and Bradford are getting to know each other better and they are getting along better. Um, there's a little bit of mutual respect growing there. And I'm, I'm currently working on the third book. And so, you know, that can, that relationship continues to develop. Um, but, you know, they, like I said, they kind of got off on the wrong foot. I think by the end of Mallow and Hall, they're not quite as adversarial. He's kind of forgiven her a little bit. And she, but she's the sort of person that, you know, basically is used to being in charge and telling people what to do and being correct. She likes to be right. And they have a, a quite a bit of a, a discussion in A Trace of Poison about what type of poison was used to murder Father Thule. So there's a, there definitely a, some, uh, I don't want to say adversarialness. There's just some, let's say debate <laughs> between the two of them. We don't know a lot about Bradford, except that we do know that he was recommended to come and work for the Malins on a personal basis, kind of similar to to, Ag uh, to Phyllida coming to work for Agatha. And uh, we, I think we know that he worked in the war and had something to do with mechanics in the war, but that's probably all we know at this point. Oh, and we know that he's a dog lover. 
Yes, and the dog is one of his ways of annoying Phyllida, um, <laughs> who refers Indeed. to this poor dog as the beast or the mop. <laughs> what offends yes. her about Myrtle? I mean, Myrtle seems like a very sweet dog, actually. <laughs> yes, well, and, and that is exactly what my intention is for the reader to be like, okay, we love Phyllida, but come on, it's a dog. So Phyllida is a cat person. She is absolutely a cat person. Cats do not jump on you. They don't lick you. They don't slobber on you. They don't bark at you. You know, they just, they're just more, you know, sedate and proper and prim, and they just don't get in your way. And even if they're a little bit picky about whether they let you cuddle them or not, they're definitely more her personality. And Myrtle, the dog, who is a mop of black, curly black fur, some sort of dog, who looks way too much like Bradford with his mop of you know messy hair. Myrtle is a puppy. She wants to love everybody. And she's just the exact opposite of the sort of personality that Phyllida is and wants to, you know, and, and, and uh, um, presents herself as. And she probably maybe had a bad experience with a dog when she was younger. Who knows? But definitely these dogs are just way, a dog is just way too excitable for her. And you're absolutely right. That is part of the thing that Bradford does to annoy her and get under her skin. He loves his dog. He loves Myrtle. And that's one thing that makes Bradford, I think, endearing to the reader is we see how much he loves that dog. Yes, I agree. It does work that way. Um, like Philida, I'm much more of a cat person, although I like dogs better than she does. <laughs> so tell us about her own chosen pets, uh, Stilton and Rye. Um, what do they contribute to her as a character? Well, I think, uh, again, the contrast between the dog, the dog person and the cat person is part of part of that. Um, and, you know, without being stereotypical, because Phyllida is not stereotypical, you know, you do think about women who are unmarried, um, is having cats. They like cats. You know, it's, it's definitely a stereotype. It's not true for every woman at all by any stretch or any man, you know, not to want a cat. But we think about uh, a woman like a housekeeper sort of a character with these sedate cats that curl up by the fireplace or look down at you, you know, if you deign to pet them or, you know, whatever. So Stilton is a fluffy female cat. She's got blue eyes and she looks like Stilton cheese. She's like a creamy white and she has some gray and grayish blue sort of striping on her very very minimal like a stilton black of stilton cheese and rye is a male cat he is much more aloof rarely will let Phyllida hold him he likes to sit on top of her bookshelf and look down at everybody all the time with a big sneer and he is the color of rye whiskey as you might have guessed um and i do think that one of the reasons Phyllida is insistent on having her cats is because she knows how allergic they are he is to uh how allergic Dobble is to cats. And Dobble is always getting on Phyllida's case about having too much chintz and lace in the sitting rooms and the parlors. He doesn't like chintz or lace. And he has a personal affront to them. And he's allergic to cats. So he's always removing pillows with chintz and lace on them. And Phyllida likes to keep her cats around. It's just one of those little um, competitions that they have with each other. What would you like people to take away from Murder at Mallowan Hall and A Trace of Poison? A couple things. I'd like people to think about Phyllida Bright as a woman. You know, I don't actually give her name, her age, I mean, but she's in her early 40s. She is a housekeeper, which to some people might be might think, oh, boy, you know, boy, that's a kind of a drudgery sort of job, which it is not actually at a, at a house as big as Mallowan Hall. She's like the COO. She actually doesn't do a lot of work. 
she manages the staff and therefore she actually does have time to investigate murder mystery murders um which which one might one might question how a servant has time to do it well you know a housekeeper actually has quite a bit of time if they have a good staff and they run the household well but what i really want people to take away is that philida is a character she is a woman of a certain age who is confident in who she is she's smart she knows she's smart she's efficient she knows she's efficient she knows her worth and she's not afraid to express it and to act on it and to, you know, use her skills and abilities to show when people are wrong and to, and to um, you know, fight for justice, really. What it comes down to is she's using her powers for good. She is very um, confident, and that might come across to some people as, you know, stuck up or full of herself, but really she's a person who's very comfortable with who she is. And I think that is the thing I'd like people to take away the most is that, we can be, especially women, once we hit a certain age, we can be comfortable in our skins, know our worth, and know who we are, and not feel bad about expressing it or acting upon it. What are you working on now? And uh, I hope you're going to tell me it's that third mystery. It is, indeed. I'm actually writing the third mystery right now. It's due to come out um, at September 2023, late September, so early October. It will be called it, uh, murder by invitation only and this book the one i'm currently working on murder by invitation only um as i mentioned previously each of the philida books has some sort of homage to a particular christie novel the one i'm working on now is an homage to a murder is announced the one that's actually coming out that we've been talking about a trace of poison that is an homage to appointment with death the very beginning of each of these three books it kind of becomes clear if you know Christy which book it's it's kind of being an homage to, and it's really only that very beginning that set up the, the 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 plots are extremely different. They really don't have anything to do with each other, but that basic idea: a body in a library, in a trace of poison. Philida overhears people talking about murdering somebody, like Poirot does in Appointment with Death, in the very beginning of Appointment with Death, and in the current book that I'm working on there is an announcement that there will be a murder just like there is and a murder is announced. And then after that, everything goes off on its own plot. So I'm working on that, but I also have a new series that is coming out at the end of April called an American in Paris series. And um, I'm following along my theme of writing a protagonist solving mysteries who has a very close friend who is a well-known strong female. In this case, this is my main character's name is Tabitha Knight. And she is a former Rosie the Riveter who goes to Paris in December 1949, and she meets Julia Child. All right. Well, I wish you great success with both of them. Uh, it's been a great Thank pleasure you. talking with you. Thank you for sharing your time with us today, Colleen. Thank you so much. And thank you for listening to our podcast. Once again, I am C.P. Leslie, the host of New Books and Historical Fiction, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. And today I've been talking with Colleen Cambridge about A Trace of Poison and his predecessor, Murder at Mallowan Hall. Find out more about her at colleengleason.com slash colleen Cambridge. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok at New Books Network. If you do, you'll see each time we post a new interview. You can find out more about me and my books at cplesley.com where I upload expanded posts about the interviews and in general discuss history, historical fiction, and the rapidly changing publishing industry. Goodbye until my next conversation about historical fiction on the New Books Network.